0: And welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the case of Jose Salvador Alvarenga, a man whose boat was caught in a storm that resulted in him being adrift in the Pacific Ocean for 438 days until he washed up on shore in the Marshall Islands. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around if you're listening to this the posting schedule has been very uh, not consistent but that is just life at the moment i think it's just been very busy um so it probably will be like this to be honest until probably the new year just yeah lots of work and hopefully moving house and yeah other stuff like that so Sorry for that. <laughs> but I definitely will be recording as and when I can. Um, and just a reminder to, to do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. I do post on there in between the these gaps of recording. Uh, and it's great to, to chat to you all there. So yeah, so today we're doing 438 days lost at sea, which it just astounds me. <laughs> like, this is one of those survival stories where I'm like, I definitely would not have survived. (laughs) Which maybe is just, you know, good for me to be self-aware. But um, yeah, I definitely could not have come out of this one. I just quickly am recording on Bonfire Night here in the UK, uh, which is a which just means there's going to be lots of fireworks. So there's loads of fireworks going on outside. Uh, I'm hoping the microphone won't pick it up. But in case it does when you hear lots of random banging, uh, then you know that um, it's just just some happy fireworks going on in the rain. Cool. So um, so Jose Alvarenga, and I'll just call him Alvarenga as we go. uh, He was born in El Salvador in around 1975. Uh, Grew up there, worked there, and he had a daughter there as well. But he unfortunately got into quite a serious fight whilst he was living there, and he felt that like if he stayed in El Salvador, then he would probably be killed. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know much about El Salvador, but I do <laughs> the things I do know makes it sound very kind of violent and unsafe. So that that maybe makes sense. So he decided that he had to he had to leave the country, and so he moved to Mexico to a place called oh, Chiapas. Something like that. which is one of the southern states uh so pretty far down in the south of mexico uh, and he moved to to the coast there and lived in a really small fishing village and he at this point decided to make his life as a fisherman uh so he would do some quite uh very long fishing expeditions uh, but during this time got very comfortable comfortable on the sea uh, and he had quite a you know, a lively life. He was a bit of a partier, so he would he would often go off to sea for like two to three days, uh, try and catch loads and loads of fish, come back, sell them, make a load of money, and then go off and kind of drink and enjoy himself again um, before then going back out to sea, doing getting fish and kind of repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, And so he was, you know, kind of living paycheck to paycheck kind of life, uh, but he definitely enjoyed himself by the sounds of it um, and loved loved good Mexican food uh, which is mentioned quite a bit uh, and yeah and he was he was a very skilled fisherman by all means he really understood the sea he felt very comfortable out there he was quite comfortable going a little bit further out than other people would um, and comfortable with taking risks out there and so he had a, a fishing boat and it was you know one of these that's a little bit cobbled together but it was it just kind of looked like a little boat. <laughs> but it was one of those boats where like it doesn't have an inside bit it's just an open an open raft type thing but it has a motor on the back uh, and notably uh just kind of before this happened he noted when he recently had got on his boat uh that recently his friends had borrowed his chain and anchor um but at that point it didn't really bother him He didn't really have an, an immediate need for it and so Al- Alvarenga often went fishing with another guy called Ray Perez. Uh, but unfortunately, on the on the on the fateful day that we're going to talk about Alvarenga, um, sorry, Ray Perez had to go and check in with his probation officer, which meant that he wouldn't be back in time in order to, to go fishing. And so Alvarenga said, um, so Ray said to Alvarenga, wait, 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 um, I'll come back. We'll go out. But Alvarenga just wasn't willing to wait. They kind of knew that there was a storm about, that there was a storm coming. They didn't have great weather uh, weather information, but they knew that there was potentially something coming. And so Alvarenga wanted to get out there uh, and get his fishing done. So he went and found a temporary worker to come and work with him for the, for the fishing trip. Uh, and so he went and talked to one of his friends and his friends connected with him with a young man called Ezekiel Cordoba. Cordoba was 22, um, and yes, he had done a reasonable amount of fishing, but he was much more used to kind of fishing in the in the lagoon, in the like very calm waters, um, and wasn't very much used to to fishing out at deep sea. And so there was a bit of a risk to kind of take him out, but Alvaring was desperate to get out there. Um, and there's a quote in the book: uh, "I am going with this new guy, but I will be back in time for the party." Uh, which is what he told his supervisor before he headed out. Um, I'm going to quote a lot from a book, and I'll talk more about the book later, but just for context, it is the book 438 Days, An Extraordinary True Story of Survival at Sea by Jonathan Franklin. And I'll come back to that soon, but just so you know where all the quotes are from. So he basically was like, yeah, good to go. I'm going to head out, head out on the waves. So they headed out on the on the very kind of laden boat. So it had lots of equipment on it, lots of fishing equipment, also, you know, boat equipment. Um, and, you know, Alvaro knew that potentially that it was going to be a bit of a rubbish uh, weather. So he did decide to take an extra day's worth of food just in case um, they got caught up in a storm or anything else. They headed out, they went quite far offshore, um, and I'm sure if you've heard anything about fishing often now, you have to go further and further away from kind of previous fishing stock sites because of overfishing, uh, so he had to go quite far off um, and laid down the lines in order to catch the fish. Um, and he had uh, a radio at this point if he needed help, um, but yeah, everything seemed to be Okay so they went out started fishing but before they knew it they were hit by this ginormous storm and if they had had you know better accurate weather i'm sure that they potentially wouldn't have gone because the storm was huge it was going to last several days um and was very very high intensity and so Alvarenga kind of tried to keep them fishing but soon realized no this this is futile we've got to get back to shore as, as soon as we could Um, And so Alvarenga, like I said, he had he had a lot of experience in in sailing. And so he had sailed in a lot of storms, he kind of knew how to how to get the boat back. So he sailed very expertly uh, over the waves, he was thrown about, um, but he had a lot of experience and he knew he could get them back to the shore. You know, the weather was awful. The boat was filling with water. So Alvaranga steered um, and then Cordoba kind of consistently tried to bail out uh, the amount of water that was coming into the boat itself. But unfortunately, Cordoba, like I said, he wasn't really used to these these conditions. So he was very much like panicking, unravelling. um, And there was a quote that said, as the weather worsened, his resolve disintegrated. He was capable of working twelve hours straight without complaining and was athletic and strong. But this crushing, soaking wet journey to the coast—he was, sure, was sure their tiny craft would shatter and sharks would devour them. So yeah, Cordoba was not having a good time, but Alvarenga was very confident that they would—yeah—that they would be okay. And they did make good progress. So Alvarenga managed to get them so that they were in sight of the shore. Um, they only had a few more, a few more hours to go, uh, and they would be safe. But unfortunately, at that point, uh, the motor, which had been working so kind of hard to to get them back, uh, just started to die. And he did all all that he could to kind of try and keep this motor going. Uh, but unfortunately, the the motor went. So at that point they were in this still in this like tiny boat in this very big storm now with no motor so they had no kind of control over where the boat went or what they could do and they so he so Albert got his radio out um and kind of rank his his boss um and they the boss said well share your coordinates put your anchor down we'll be out to get you but as we learned earlier, Alvaranga didn't have an anchor, uh, so he basically had no, no ability to, to steer this boat and no ability to, to kind of stay in one place or to head more towards um, the shore. Uh, so his boss and, and Co on, on shore did say like don't worry, we'll send rescue boats out. We're gonna get to you it's you know don't worry just wait Uh, but the storm was just so intense and you know they didn't have a motor they didn't have anything so they were just at the mercy of the waves and they just kind of had to just do whatever they could to just try and keep the boat afloat at this point, the boat was just taking on so much water that they had to do as, as much as they can to to lighten the boat so that it wouldn't sink. Um, so at this point, they decided to basically toss off anything that was not attached to the boat. So they uh, chucked off all the fish they'd caught, all their equipment, their extra gasoline, basically anything they could toss off the side of the boat, they did. Which was... Unfortunate in hindsight, <laughs> I'm sure that they would have been very much appreciative if they had left one tiny hook on their boat, but they did not. They weren't, you know, they were very much thinking, well, if we don't survive this moment, everything else is irrelevant, right? And so, uh, unfortunately, then they had at this point no no anchor, no motor. Um, and then the next morning, the radio died. Um, the batteries weren't out of power um, and the, and they didn't have any batteries to replace it with. So now they had no motor, no GPS, no radio, uh, and the boat was basically fully alone um, and at the mercy of the waves. And so they knew it wasn't going to be easy for them to, to get anywhere or potentially for them to be found. So they kind of tried to, to ride out the storm and thankfully the storm waned after after a couple of days um, and they then started realising that it was really hot on this boat and so they had this like very small ice box that they had stored the fish in and so they basically flipped it upside down and had to sit inside it in order to shelter from the sun. Uh, so yeah, so basically at this point they've, they've been tossed off into the sea um, and are just floating about in it. Uh, there was, though, a rescue operation at this point. Uh, there was kind of no formal coast guard in the area that they were in, uh, but Alvarenga had had a lot of friends and a lot of friends in the in the fisherman community, and so uh, a lot of the fishermen got together to try and go out and look as much as they could, um, and they searched for for yeah like days and days, weeks and weeks, uh, but obviously weren't able to find them. So once they headed headed again they once they floated out to sea. They, you know, in the early days they were just drifting along, they had a bit of food left from what they had packed. And they were at this point very much convinced that someone was gonna find them pretty quickly. It was just a case of kind of waiting a few days uh for, for them to pass by a boat or for the for the rescue to get to them. And so they started coming up with all these plans for what they would do if they would if they saw another boat, um, or how they would kind of get someone else's attention. Uh, so one of their plans was that they would uh, set a light one of their t-shirts. Uh, unfortunately, they then found out that it was too wet. Um, but they also had a little mirror, so could they kind of like reflect some light? But unfortunately, what happened is that they did, and it's a kind of a common theme. They do come across boats in this in this tale because they are kind of near quite a major shipping lane. But if you think about the boats that are out there at that time, they're these ginormous container ships, like absolutely huge, and they don't really have anyone visible on them, or, or you know, that's out there, kind of looking out to the sea. They're just, you know, very big boats with not a lot of people on them. That that don't see anything. So, unfortunately, it became quite a common occurrence that they would see these huge boats, but the boats wouldn't see them, and they would just literally just continue chugging on by which yeah is very i think that's one of the worst things about this is that actually they come quite close to to people in humanity quite a few times but they, they just can do nothing to actually get anyone's attention which yeah i just think it's so it's so sad <laughs> um and just so that just must must be so tragic which kind of throws me back to episode one of this podcast which was about one of those big container ships that uh, went down so yeah, if you, haven't, if you haven't gone all the way back to the beginning, then um, I can't, uh, to be honest, it's one of these things like I can't re-listen to my old episodes. It just feels too weird. So uh, it might be awful. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I've improved over time. But hopefully I started well as well. So um, yeah, do, do have a listen to it because even if I probably pause too many times and say, um, which I don't edit out enough, uh, it is a very interesting and sad tale. Anyway, um, so they basically, at this point, were like, right, well, the boat's, you know, we're not getting rescued. It, it's been a few days now. W- what are we going to do? We're going to have to find a way to, to live on this boat. So now they kind of had the opposite problem with the sun, like I said. So they basically like huddled themselves into the shade of the icebox, trying to just kind of beat the sun. But the biggest problem that they had that they had especially at the beginning was was not having any water. Um, so obviously they were surrounded by salt water that they weren't able to drink but they they didn't have any actual fresh water that they could drink. Uh, they also had no food and like I said, they dumped absolutely everything overboard so they didn't have anything like any fishing hooks or anything like that. So they were in a bit of a bit of a crap way really. Uh, but thankfully, Alvarenga, as you will hear throughout this entire tale, is very handy um, and constantly actually comes up with solutions to how to 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 get them solved. So um, it was noted that kind of around the boat there was loads and loads of fish, and so what he decided to do was just to catch the fish with his hands. Um, so he would literally, like, stick his hands over the side of the boat and then wait, like, and just be really, really still. And then when a little fish would swim in between his hands, he would snap them shut as quickly as he could. And he, thankfully, got quite good at this. So... They would eat fish after fish, and obviously it would help. I mean, they were teeny tiny, so it wasn't really like giving them a huge amount of of calories or anything like that. But it, one, it was something, and two, just the liquid within within a fish fish tissues was was helping to you know keep give them a tiny bit of hydration. And one of the other things that at this point that they struggled with was they they were very scared to get in the water as they were through this whole thing because they were very worried about sharks and sharks are apparently very uh, common in this part of the world and in this area and they knew that there was a high chance that if they did get in the water then sharks would come and find them. So over the days uh, Alvaring is catching these fish uh, but what also happened is that, which I mean is just a very sad Part of life, um, but that there was loads and loads of rubbish in the sea, because we know that we are a horribly polluting world now, and so the the oceans have huge amounts of of trash that just kind of passed by the boat on the waves. But this this actually turned out to be very good for them, not good for anyone else in the world, but good for them because actually there were loads of like plastic bottles and stuff that would kind of float past them. And so whenever they saw a bottle or a container or anything like that, they grabbed it because they were like, right, when it rains, we're going to capture as much of the rain as possible in all these containers uh, so that they could store it. Thankfully, a few days into their, into their ordeal, uh, the rains did come um, and the men were yeah just ecstatic that, that the rain came and that they finally could get some water. They did eventually find a five-gallon barrel that, that also floated past them. Um, so they just started hoarding water as much as they could whenever it rained so that then they eventually kind of built up a store so that they had enough water to last them about a week. But it still wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of water. Like, they were, they were in no way hydrated, but, you know, they had enough water that they could survive, which was was important at this point. So at this point, Alvaringa continued to find animals to eat. So he continued to kind of fish. Um, he then, they would, then went through a phase where they would eat a lot of sea turtles, which he was kind of just able to grab out of the ocean. Um, and they would, they would last quite a while. And so they would either eat the sea turtles, sea turtles raw, um, or kind of cut strips up and dry them in the sun. Which also, so many throwbacks, uh, throws me back to what would you do to stay alive? Nineteen, I want to say nineteen seventy two? Andes crash, where they ate each other, and that one was similar because it was like they chopped up all the human flesh and tried to dry it out. But anyway, this this time a little bit nicer. <laughs> A bit, of, a bit of sea turtle um drying up for them and so they did end up having you know a steady supply of food not enough food that they were were not losing weight like they were losing loads of weight um you know their skin really stretched because they were so dehydrated and burnt um and they were very much you know famished Eventually, Alvarenga started catching birds. So there was a lot of, you know, migratory seabirds who would uh, stop and rest as, as they uh, could when they were out at sea. And so quite a lot of birds would land on the boat. Um, and because they were very tired when they were landed on the boat, um, Alvarenga was just able to basically just jump on them um, and either just kill them straight away. Or what he would do is he would like break their wings and then just like keep them as like a store of food so that then he could, you know, when he wanted to eat something, he could just kill one of the birds he'd kept and then carry on. Which is so sad, but very, you know, resourceful, I guess. It's not like you got a fridge, right? So you gotta you gotta keep your keep your food alive until you can kill it. So yeah, so they kind of got, you know, they got into a routine at this point. They had water, they had some food, you know, they had the little ice box that they could hide from the sun in. Uh, But unfortunately, as you would expect, they didn't have very good mental states at this point. Um, And this was especially true of Cordoba. So he, you know, he didn't love the sea. He wasn't used to the sea. He wasn't like Alvarenga, where Alvarenga was so, you know, kind of adapted to that way of, of life. And so, yeah, Cordoba didn't really like eating the fish or the birds. And he, yeah, he only kind of ate when Alvarenga kind of forced him to eat. He wasn't just eating to keep his 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 strength up. So he so Cordoba was very much kind of more fading away, I'd say, rather than Alvarenga at this point. But they were both religious, so they both kind of tried to stick to their religious faith to kind of keep them going, to to you know, that 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 this was was God's will and God would get them out of it and they just had to persevere type thing. So they they did try very hard to, to do that. But around the hundred day mark, um, and they tried to kind of like they because they saw like uh, lunar cycles, so they could have a bit of an idea for how long how long they've been out there. So yeah, it'd been around about hundred days um, when Cordoba kind of continued to fall into this very deep depression, um, and then at one point, Cordoba got very ill from uh, food poisoning because he ate one of the birds, um, and unfortunately, the bird was kind of tainted. Um, and after that, he then refused to eat any birds because he was kind of so worried about this food poisoning he would gone and kind of then became very famished. So, yes, yeah, so around this kind of hundred day mark, uh, Cordoba just got worse and worse and his mental health uh, really declined. Um, and there was a quote in the book that said, uh, he angrily demanded the opportunity to end his own life. When Alvarenga again restrained him inside the box, Cordoba began to beat his fists against, the fa- against his face and slam his head into the wall. Then, in quotes, he was desperate. I would try and calm him. I was battling to save my life and to save his life. He was out of it, but I had to help him. He was my companion, said Alvarenga. So, yeah, Cordoba's in a really bad state at this point, from like his mental state, but also just his physical state he's he's famished, he's malnourished, he's dehydrated, um, and just he couldn't couldn't go out go on um so yeah he he just kind of started eating and drinking less, and just one day. Uh, he just woke up and told Al- Alvaringa he couldn't move anymore. He said he was tired. He said he he wanted water. Alvaringa kind of tried to help him, tried to give him some water. But soon after that, he apparently had um, some convulsions and a seizure and then just died on the boat. Um, just from, yeah, starvation and exposure, probably. Which, yes, it's very sad to think. But, I mean, impressive he managed to make it 100 days. But, yeah, at that point, at that point, he he died and this obviously really threw Alvaringa because Alvaringa didn't want to be alone. Not only are you stuck out at sea, but now you're stuck out at sea by yourself. Um, and this kind of kept him spiraling very soon after Cordoba died. And so he kind of kept Cordoba's body on the boat, kept talking to it. And then six days later, he came, came to his senses um, and he took Cordoba's clothes and then pushed him off the boat. And he says that when he pushed, when he pushed him off the boat, the kind of shock of of doing that and putting him in the sea made him made him faint and then fall into a deep depression. So really, yeah, a really tragic bit of the story because it is it's awful that that Cordoba didn't make it and that he was yeah just unable to carry on and then just awful that now at this point Alvarenga is is by himself and like I say, you know, we're kind of talking day a hundred. Um, and as I said at the beginning, we're talking four hundred and thirty-eight days. So it's that's still three hundred and thirty-eight days, probably that Alvarenga had to do alone. Um, so almost a year, which yeah, it seems very awful. It's also important to say at this point they did have an agreement not to eat not to eat each other. So um, yes, it's reported he did not eat him. So, at this point, we kind of just go into the phase of, like, months passing. So, Alvarenga floated across the seas. Like, it was just awfully boring. Like, there was not much that he could see. You know, he had to, like, feed himself and stuff. But it was just lonely, boring torture, really. Uh, you know some things did change. He eventually devised a way to kind of get into the sea so he would test the sea by throwing birds' feet in uh, and then see and then if no sharks kind of came in the in the surrounding minutes then he would he would jump in um, and kind of have a proper bath. Uh, and at this point he also realized that he could he could prize off the um, like the barnacles and the other shellfish that had attached um, attached themselves to his boat so he had um, another another type of food as well. Again, he regularly saw quite large ships at this point and when you see the map of where he floated, it's clear that at certain points he crosses the, the big shipping lanes, uh, but again, none of them saw him or stopped. He tried to kind of make some friends as he as he went, so um, for a week, a really giant whale shark came along and like swam with him for a week and he just spent that week talking to it and, and becoming friends. Um, until one day it disappeared. Uh, he then had a baby whale shark who floated alongside him as well. Um, he did keep one of the birds called the bird Pancho. It was his favorite bird um, which was a bit different to the other ones um, and they would he would talk to, to Pancho and would feed him as little you know little bits that he could. Unfortunately he did have to eat pancho eventually but for a while he had he had a friend. He talked to the ocean, Uh, he talked, he just, he basically kind of like retreated back into himself, into this kind of, a mix of kind of delusion and fantasy, because when you are in this, in this state alone for so long, you do, you do just go a bit mad, which is, yeah, very scary. But to be honest, he survived it quite well, I thought. Like I said, I would not survive this in any way. Um, But there was a good quote about kind of his survival from a physical and mental perspective. And it said, Although Alvarenga was unaware, he carried the optimum body type and precise age for for an extreme survival situation. He was exceptionally strong, but not too tall or too muscled to require massive caloric intake. And at 34, near the perfect vortex of maximum strength and experience. In a trick to maintain mental health M. Alvarenga travelled deep into fantasy land he cleaved his identity into two personas who might have been dubbed Alvarenga the victim and Alvarenga the storyteller and while the body habituated the former his mind migrated to the latter so yeah so you can kind of see that he you know he, he he was a victim he you know his body was starving but in his head he was the storyteller he could go off to these worlds whilst his whilst his body Declined, and like I say, he had a lot. of He had a lot of mental strength. You know, like he was religious, so he had his religion that he followed. But he also went through quite a lot, like a long phase of feeling a lot of regret about his daughter and about how he hadn't spent time with her or kind of been with her to to raise her. And he kind of, you know, would bargain with with God, like if I make make this through, then I'm gonna I'm gonna go and see my daughter, and I'm gonna right these wrongs um, of of my kind of past performance. Which, which was what kept him going. Really, it did. He did, and and he he kind of saw the funny side to it. And I was reading a little bit about humor, and it does say that in these kind of extreme survival situations, humor is the first thing to go and the last thing to come back. Um, so when Alvarenga did get his humor back, it kind of showed that he had just fully adapted to this to this horrific situation that he found himself in. It got it got worse if possible so like as time passed um he went through a phase where it got very hot where there was very little rain he was very worried about whether he was going to survive um he had to spend a lot of his days just cramped in the tiny ice box which if you do look at a photo of it it is tiny um trying to hide from the sun due to kind of being in that icebox and in this like crunched up position for so long, um, he ended up with three vertebrae out of alignment um, and he just had like never-ending back pain as part of the journey. Sometimes he just couldn't walk and he just basically had to crawl around. So yeah, after it had been over a year uh, of him since his disappearance, his family and friends online, I mean, online, online, Um, his family and friends were still like very convinced that he was alive they they really thought that he was still out there they'd never found the boat they'd never found any equipment um, and they said that whenever they would light a candle for him it would never fully go out it would never fully go all the way to the bottom so they knew they knew that he was somewhere out there So after 438 days, he suddenly saw an island in the distance, which he was slowly floating towards. He immediately, due to the stress of it, had a nap, which I think is so typical in my life, right? This is very stressful. I must nap. Um, and so, but then he, when he woke up, he was basically at this island. Like he just he just managed to float his way to it. Um, and so he jumped off the boat um, and the boat kind of drifted itself ashore. And it just immediately as he got onto the island, he just absolutely coll- collapsed um, and just passed out on this beach. Um, and that's what the the kind of medics say, that when someone gets to the end of, you know, a very stressful situation, they basically kind of relax and then just deteriorate rapidly, uh, which... I can I can see that you you're kind of being kept alive on you know adrenaline and and stress and then as soon as that you you, you have some form of relief basically your whole body just collapses. So he was very ill at this point when he when he managed to to get on land. And somehow because to be honest he was due a bit of luck right after 438 days he had somehow managed to end up in the Marshall Islands which are the most remote place in the world but also managed to end on end up on an atoll which actually had some people on it because the majority of the islands out that way in the pacific are actually uninhibited so um yeah he managed to actually get you know catch a break um and and get on a, a an atoll sorry i just was distracted by the i'm sure you probably heard it very loud fireworks very loud people screaming outside um i don't even know where the fireworks are they sound very close but i can't see them um but we saw the fireworks last night so Maybe that's it. It's about eight o'clock. That's about the time that someone would do a fireworks display, I feel. Anyway, so he, yeah, so he stumbled on this island that had a couple living on it called Russell and Emmy. And it was basically like one of the most remote places on earth. So um, even from the kind of like the main town in the Marshall Islands, a place called Ebon, it would take 2,500 miles in a boat in order to get over to Australia. And so Alberenga kind of got on shore and then just started wandering about, basically. And Emmy thankfully spotted him and was like, "Oh my god, he looks an absolute mess." And Emmy assumed that maybe he'd just fallen overboard from one of the big ships that had come had come past. Uh, and so she was like okay tried you know they tried to convince him to come in um they gave him lots of water lots of food and he would just like never ending just drink and eat to to obviously finally have food so um they were clearly like oh my gosh you know where where has he come from like what is his story um but they couldn't really like communicate with him because by this point Alvaringa was pretty traumatized which you would expect um, and he kind of couldn't really like mentally handle having people in front of him and he was really paranoid and really scared um, but they also just couldn't communicate because he only spoke Spanish um, and Russell and Emmy didn't speak any Spanish so they just had a full language difference uh, but they managed to figure it out because he Alvaringa managed to take Russell and Emmy to look at the boat and then they were like oh my gosh there's that boat. It looks an absolute mess. Clearly he's been on it for a long time. That must have been where he came from. So at this point, Russell tried to get Alvaringa to write a note, but Alvaringa couldn't actually really, it wasn't very literate, so he just kind of wrote some random words. Um, but Alver- um, but Russell took a boat to, to Ebon, the, the main the, the main town, uh, and found the mayor and, and told the mayor what had happened. And like I said, everyone was really intrigued and really wanted to know what had happened. But Alberinger was really scared, really terrified. He kind of thought that he had managed to make it all this way, but then was going to be arrested. Because I, I don't really know why he thought he was going to be arrested. But he was just convinced that all these people weren't there to help him. That they were there to arrest him. Because, you know, maybe he didn't have a visa or whatever. Like, he it, it, it was just very non-rational. Which is understandable in in the situation. But... As soon as, you know, the mayor and people started hearing about it, the kind of news started to spread that this guy had been sailing, you know, adrift in the ocean for so long. And initially there were all these doubts, like, surely this is a hoax, no way anyone could have survived for that long, no way this could have happened. But eventually they they were able to verify it because they could look at the boat, see the registration that was on the boat, and then they could match it to the missing boat and the missing registration of, of Alvaringa when he had gone. And so at that point, you know reporters just like went mad for it and were just trying to cover as much of it as possible because it is it's such a tale right that and I to be honest I don't remember it happening at all um but I'm I'm sure it was covered in in huge amounts of of detail I'm sure some of you listening to it will will have remembered it when it when it hit the headlines so Alvaringa eventually was taken to by boat to the mainland but he really didn't want to go on the boat because he was like I can't do this like i don't want to ever be on a boat again basically uh, but he managed to get on the boat and then was taken to hospital uh, but he actually ended up staying in hospital for 11 days uh, they rehydrated him they made sure he was eating uh, he got a lot of pain and they think it was probably because his tissues and muscles had become so dehydrated that when he rehydrated they kind of didn't really know how, how to deal with it and they went they went very swollen but, after eleven days, the doctors basically said he was stable enough that they could fly him back to El Salvador um and get get him over there and reunited back with his family. So that's exactly what he did. He jumped, jumped on a plane by this point he had um found some Spanish speakers so was able to communicate a lot better, had you know found some allies uh, to help him as he was was kind of reintegrating back into the world and to help kind of protect him from all the press and the media attention, which which he was just getting huge amounts of. So yeah, they managed to fly him back. He had never been on a plane before, so apparently that was utterly terrifying to actually yep, yeah, have to then get on one of those, which we all know I'm scared of flying, so I feel I feel that pain. Um, but yes, he he didn't enjoy that. But he did manage to make it back. So he made it back to El Salvador and he was fully reunited with his daughter and his family. He went back to the fishing village um where he had left and and saw all, all of his old fishing buddies but yeah following the incident he was left with a lot of trauma like a lot of PTSD which of course you would expect in this case because how can you go through an ordeal like that and not and and be a normal person after it yeah and so he had a very big fear of the ocean uh, he was very scared of like open water scared of sleeping for a long time had a lot of flashbacks needed a lot of company to kind of reassure him that he was back back in the world and I—I I mean, he didn't necessarily said, say this anywhere explicitly, but I'm sure he got a lot of help over this time. Hopefully, to to make him make him feel better and make him able to to cl- collaborate on this book, I would hope. So yeah, so after all of that, he made it back uh, and just kind of reintegrated back into life. And he um, did a lot of interviews at this point. Um, you know, became a bit of a a local hero um, in El Salvador, um, and he collaborated on a book. So he met um, the author, Jonathan Franklin, and they did loads of interviews together um, to to really understand and track out his journey. Um, And to to kind of finish this tale, when Jonathan kind of said, like, why do you want to collaborate on this book? And, you know, obviously, like, there's money in it, but, but why? You don't, you know, you don't have to. Um, And this was his kind of verbatim answer, which was, "'I suffered so much and for so long. "'If people can read this, they will realise that if I can make it, "'they can make it. "'Many people suffer only because of what happens in their heads. "'If I can make it, so can you. "'If one depressed person avoids committing suicide, "'then this book is a success. "'Be strong. Think positive. "'If you start to think to the contrary, then you are headed to failure.' Your mind has to be relaxed as you think about survival. Don't think about death. You have to survive and think about the future of your life. That life is beautiful. So yeah, he just really wanted to to kind of use his experience to hopefully improve other people's lives. And I think that, yeah, he, if you hear about that tale, um, it does, you know, and hopefully does make you feel a bit more appreciative about life and that you're not stuck in a tiny boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which, you know, is only... It's only positive, right? So yeah, so that's kind of the the tale of the four hundred and thirty eight days. What we learnt. I mean, I think what I learned is that some people can survive such horrendous experiences, which I've learned through many of these episodes. But yeah, hundred percent. I just it just astounds me that people can be that that savvy to be able to figure out everything, to be able to catch these fish and kill these birds and and find water and just and just mentally stay alive for that amount of time. I just think is is astounding. So yeah, that that is something I learned and and I guess just the kind of the mind over matter, you know he, he really did manage to keep himself mentally there. Uh, which again, it's very impressive. So yeah, so that's that's the tale in terms of references. Yeah, the main reference is that book that I mentioned at the beginning, 438 Days an Extraordinary True Story of Survival at Sea by Jonathan Franklin. I really recommend it. I really enjoyed reading it. I read it on holiday. Um it's it's quite small, like it's I think it's only about a 5 hour read on the Kindle. And I and I yeah, I devoured it. I read it very quickly. It's very uh, well written and covers a lot of it in detail and, and you know really Covers a lot more about the the blow by blow, you know, of, of being out there and and the decisions they made and and what happened, and then also covers a bit more about um, the aftermath. So yeah, highly recommend that. Um, there's a, the, when he published it, there's a few articles on the web where they've kind of taken extracts from it. So I'll also link those as well, so you we can kind of have a bit of a read. And then yeah, there's a few videos on YouTube as well. So there's a bit of content, but I would say if you're interested in it, then definitely read the book. Uh, it was very enjoyable cool so thank you very much for listening like i said please follow me on instagram at when it goes wrong pod uh you can also if you're not on instagram but you want to chat you can send me an email when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com i love to hear from you um i promise i do reply to every email and i take all of your suggestions they are all in a very uh, long document uh, for me to work my way through Uh, so yeah please do continue sending any of those my way